Hello and welcome to episode number 14. 14 of our podcast. My name is Elliot Greenman. I'm Alex Tianel. And this week we start talking about whales, dolphins, uh, astronomy, astronomy, limitation, eyes, yeah. PGO spikes. And then a lot of it just comes back to limitations. Limitations. And, and yeah. how it could be a positive thing. A great is to be limited, indeed. Mm. Tell us what you think about it, because it's uh, great to discuss all that um, with real humans. Perambulations in Franglais. Misty sets and ondoto sets. What's that? So odonto sets are tooth whales and misty sets are baleen whales. So like a sperm whale is a ondoto set, but a fin whale is actually a misty set. So because I did quite a lot of dissection and post-mortem work on ondoto sets uh, in New Zealand. So we did the maybe third or in the world a ginkgo tooth whale. So it's like a strange whale whose wolf tooth is in the shape of a ginkgo biloba leaf and that's why it's called a ginkgo tooth whale so we had to do uh, pre and post-mortem browsing to know what what could have happened we did a bit of blobber sample to know about pollutant and things like that and then blood sample to look at different uh, things and I had to resect the stomach in order to send it to Palmerston University to uh, see a bit the content and to see a bit whether they were plastics or, or what type of diet because they got like I can't remember how they're called um, those little stones in the stomach of uh, ruminating animals like that so you've got like a pit Petro, uh, was well, about petroglyphs. That's so like painting on bloody caves. Um, you, you get little, you got stone like that because you got that from dinosaurs. So you got like fossilized, not fossilized stones because they're already stones, really. But you got the stone within the remain, uh, remain, uh, remains of dinosaurs where they got stones in their stomach. So the stone is in the stomach and it helps with the stomach motion to grind the food basically. And because those uh, animals eat quite a lot of uh, jellyfish, actually, they tend oh, to. Whales. Yeah, whales. They tend to actually have to uh, grind the whole lot and they got like stones and pebbles in their stomach who actually mechanically help with the whole lot. So it's quite an interesting thing. Yeah, so I know a bit because I was meant to do. A master's in marine biology in Dunedin University in New Zealand. Uh, my friend Anton von Helden, who's, who's a, who was a curator of Te Papa Museum in uh, Wellington, and he was uh, specialized in uh, uh, sea mammals, was actually uh, was going to sponsor me to go there, and I was looking at the vestigial lower limb in Ondotoset. So basically, with the whales, it's a bit peculiar, and evolutionary speaking, there's a bit of a peculiar thing with whales, because they were uh, sea-dwelling creatures, and they went on land. And then they went back in the uh, water. So they had to develop limbs, 
and then they got rid of their hind limbs, but not completely, because you can still feel or uh, maybe find a ilium part of your femur and tibia, which I don't know, like the gingo tooth well we dissected was like, I think it was like uh, 16 feet. Or what was it that you dissected again? What was it? The uh, ginkgo tooth ginkgo. well. Ginkgo tooth well. Okay. It's quite special. Mm. You've not, uh, you're not going to have heard about that too, too much. How do you know? <laughs> the what? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And yeah, I don't know, it's like 16, 17 feet long. And uh, the ilium and the wool and the femur and the tibia I found on the one side was, yeah, as big as my mobile phone here. So it's really tiny, embedded in a blobber. Is that what makes them think that they've been on land and then now they're. Oh, yeah, no, no. So, yeah, yeah, it was just quite clear cut. Yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah no, no, you don't have to think, it's a fact. <laughs> <laughs> my, they know, they know, they know. My immediate reaction to stuff like that is still, well, maybe there's another explanation for stuff. Yeah, it could be, yeah, yeah. But you're going to have to find a pretty good scientific explanation or, or a different framework, yeah. But you can't uh, have a bit of both because the main thing with uh, uh, all the Darwinian or epigenetic way of looking at things it's uh, really well very robust there's all the fossil there's all the actual things there's all the genetic things there's all the well you look at the phylogenesis phylogenese it's all that tree of life from all the daploblastic traploblastic all the arthropods all I mean it's like all the tree of life really and you look genetically how related they all are really and how much we share with things really and it becomes I mean that's so one big game of snap yeah 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 and it's really evolved nowadays you know because we used to so you used to put two you used to put two single strand of DNA of two different species together in a solution and you'll see how much they stick together mm -hmm. and depending on how much they stick you need it to hit the temperature at a certain level to be able to unstick them and the hotter the temperature was the more binding it was basically so the more correlation there was between the things nowadays we do like uh, sequencing there's like uh, different part of the coding gene and the non-coding gene there's like telomeres there's all sorts of really the architecture of uh, the DNA is really su is super advanced so we have correlated the fossil, the current thing, the current specimens, and the genetics between different specimens. So we have a multi-layered uh, way of actually inferring relation and different ways, really. So it's pretty, it's pretty solid a th mm. theory nowadays. It's much more robust than it ever has been. Yes. And it, probably will continue to and be. And will continue way. to be with all the latest research and things. Mm -hmm. So, at one stage, there was loads of uh, different um, uh, type of uh, dinosaurs. Uh, when we were doing, uh, when the, the paleontologists were digging the ground and finding uh, things, they were classifying what they were finding. And one day somebody said, well, we seem to not have too many juveniles. There's not many young dinosaurs. We find eggs and we find dinosaurs. <laughs> but maybe there's some old dinosaurs and young dinosaurs. 
and he's actually a private collectioner who did that and he was a, mil a billionaire or millionaire or whatever and he started to cut all the shaft of the long bones of the whole thing to try to see the difference between the different parts and it was quite obvious there was a bit of a disparity between things so in appearance it was looking the same but when you were cutting it the whole fine structure of the bone because you know in the museum you keep it and you don't touch it and then oh my god don't touch it leave it there and then we can display it it's great but he was really tinkering with the whole lot and then he realized well actually we classified certain specimens as different species when actually they are the juvenile of the other species and because they, they've got quite a big dysmorphism so or if it's, if it's, if it's how it's called there's a, a difference a very strong difference in the appearance of the juvenile compared to the adult or a very big difference of the adult compared to the juvenile and therefore we could have been um, maybe made to think that they were two different species basically when actually it's not the case so there's been an awful lot of re redefining of all the different species of uh, a dinosaur in the last what 15 15 years 20 years mm. completely they've had to revamp the whole lot completely because they were actually uh, juvenile and or uh, young juvenile early adults and uh, fully grown because there's different between four or three or two stages in the life of a dinosaur. So it was really weird, really. So that's, that's why I think it's having the, the scientific method is really, is really robust. It's something that can be challenged all the time and it can be, you know, re-explored and new, new findings can help to refine a bit the pattern matching a little bit of that, of... of, of of it all really so it's it's actually yeah it's difficult to not to say that it's impossible but it's difficult to find nowadays a better explanation about things like that especially natural sciences I think it's quite with the genetic with the morphological with the metabolic with the um, all the whole rest really all the fossils all the stuff is completely like we can't really look at it from any different angle in as a, a broad um, and not convincing fashion, but um, I don't know, like true. I'm not sure if it's the right word, really, but there must be a word. I'm not sure which one I'm, sh I'm looking for, really, but it's quite... The, the layers of proof are pretty deep and so that's it that's it it's layered on different things yeah, really it's yeah. Like, yeah so the whales were in the water like all the other creatures and then creatures went on land and then from being on land they went back into the water so I didn't know that about whales the or dolphins or orcas or things like that really ondotosets and mysticets as well the baleen what's the difference again so the baleen is a filtrating, the baleen well is a, um, no, 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 is a filtrating mechanism they have. So they, they eat microorganisms, mm. they eat plankton or krill. So the, okay. the blue whale. A blue no. whale. A blue no. whale is a mysticate. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Okay. So which is, which is the biggest living organism ever. To live on on Earth on the planet, even e the, ever, 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 
even dinosaurs were not as big as a blue whale. The heart of a blue whale is as big as a, as a beetle. Car. Oh. That's, a that's VW beetle yeah, car. That, that needed some yeah, yeah. more that's it, that's it, that's it, that's it. I got your attention. Yeah. There. <laughs> um, yeah, so... Oh, that's and the Honda Auto sets have got teeth. So they've got teeth, proper enameled or ivory teeth, basically, and they catch the, uh, different prays, basically. So they're a bit more carnivorous uh, things. So they're going to, like in New Zealand, there was lots of problems with fire retardant, which were put in sofas and, and bits and uh, mattresses, all those kind of stuff, who were chucked in the bloody sea by the locals, basically. And all that fire retardant was uh, seeping into the ecosystem. And the bantic uh, creatures who feed at the bottom, the bottom feeder, basically, like skate, for example, had a very high concentration of fire retardant. And what was happening is the whales were eating the skate and therefore it concentrated in the food chain. We know that from many things in the food chain. And that those fire retardants, we were trying to ascertain what problems they were causing and possibly they were causing a decrease in the fertility of the female or the male as well. So the fertility of the species was di diminished and it was creating possibly more stillbirth from, uh, from the, from thing. So, from whales. From whales. And it, did you, you mentioned earlier about the plastic in, uh, like looking for stuff in the stomachs. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did yeah, you yeah. find any plastic in there? I don't know because I didn't have access to the, I didn't really look too much at the, I did that for a few months. Mm. So it was quite an interesting, uh, interesting process really. But yeah, ginkgo too swell. Really quite an interesting uh, uh, creature. Yes. I really like whales. It's funny how like most people will have a hierarchy of animals uh -huh, uh -huh. and aren't too worried about mm -hmm. squashing ants on the way to work or mm -hmm, mm -hmm. little beetles or something. And then yeah, yeah. as soon as it gets to like a bigger animal, of course, of course, and and, and something that looks or behaves more like us, mm -hmm. like with communities, or we behave more like them as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a quite high level of uh, communication and there's a bit like um, we're trying to listen to their uh, echolocation and their communication with sound and the way sound propagates in water and things like that is quite interesting thing and certain calls they have to you have to learn to speak your name in a way really so well there's loads of researchers who work on that at the moment and it's really an interesting thing about communication and all the rest really and the way it how they initiate play with each other how they initiate getting together to go and and hunt or different things it's really it's an amazing thing but yeah these are very very interesting creatures but I think they've been maybe because I think all creatures are amazing really mm. like you know like fire ants are really amazing as well really the way they go about doing the stuff with termites and with their environment how they map the whole lot how um, like the tiniest tiniest scale as well 
that's like it. And insanely then small. Uh, yeah, yeah, very small. And then, uh, nonetheless, very like it's not it's not very deterministic there's a bit of uh, they're able to actually accommodate to the change in the environment quite well really and they've got and they've been successful at it for i don't know when insect starts really an arthropod start but it's a, a while back really in terms of evolutionary things so they've been successful for much longer than the dinosaurs <laughs> much longer than most things really you know so um, They are, they've been about and they've dealt with changes in the environment and, and when they collect together they've got that uh, higher uh, ability in a way really rather than on their own they're quite already quite able but when they're all together they're even more able and the, being the sum of the parts a little bit is quite an interesting concept really yeah but All the, uh, when I was a kid, it was more uh, with um, uh, Commandant Cousteau, Jacques-Yves Cousteau, who was quite an interesting uh, guy because he bought a D-minor from in 1945 from the Americans and he started to revamp it to uh, explore things. So he created all the, um, all the breathing apparatus. He patented the breathing apparatus for, uh, for diving, all those kind of stuff. He did the first pictures underwater first movies underwater first city underwater first houses underwater all the rest I mean it's quite a pioneer really and you got like very I've got very fond memory of looking at the aquatic world really which well we we've not come out we've come out of that not such a long time ago really and Well, you were in water when you were in your mum's womb, really. Because <laughs> mm. that's where we are, in a way, really. And we have an amazing ability to swim, or swim. we even swim underwater, yeah, like yeah. when we're really, really... That's young. it, that's it. It's a bit weird, isn't it? Then you, Not then, really breathe underwater, but no. yet, but... But then you lose, don't you lose that ability for the trade-off of learning to crawl and walk? Yeah, 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 yeah. Well, yeah, the trade-offs, the sacrifices mm. have to be done, really. It's like uh, that podcast that we both just listened to. Of, yeah. We were talking about, the of Mr. Peterson, where he was talking about <coughs> your eyes and how they concentrate mm -hmm. the, the, the fo fovea. fovea. Mm -hmm. And now he's like, if you, if you, the amount of neurons it takes just for that small amount yeah. if your whole eye was like that your head would be like <laughs> you wouldn't be able to, you wouldn't be be able to move anyway yeah, yeah your head would be on the floor because you could not hold it but, so it's you, like, but you'll see very well that's such a strong image for me because it's like you're walking as a machine that has made lots and lots of trade-offs mm -hmm. to be able to do loads and loads and loads of different things mm -hmm. it's pretty nuts isn't it no the whole game playing really and the rules and the whole free will type stuff is quite interesting with the way he described it about being playing playing chess really you play chess you got so many so many little humans or soldiers or thing on the whole bloody thing and you got a set of rules really and and so you restrict the stuff on the board with so many places you restrict the number of people and you restrict what you can do on it by putting rules and despite that there's an infinite amount of possibility <laughs> so it's pretty it's pretty freaking amazing the fact that there's 
the society we are in has got so many rules and so many restrictions and we're all cribbling about it because we want to be freer and all the rest when actually that is what enables us to get free really so we don't have to have an eye which is very ginormous with a massive head to pay attention to everything it's because there's rules that it allows us to just focus on certain things really it's like you spoke about before the, the limitations yes yeah, that's it that's it same 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 thing mm. so your eye is a bit limited but it uh, it enables you to pay attention to what uh, uh, is happening really mm. that's all really what are you going to do with that limitation Mm-hmm. Are you going to try and you're going to try and utilize the full extent of that limitation? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And the main problem is when we talk about that, we take it into isolation as well, really. That's the main problem, really. We take about one limitation when actually it's a set of limitations, really, which enables us to use the one in limitation in a certain context, really. But it depends on other limitations, so it's almost futile to talk about just the one really it's good to make the example but otherwise it's just this limitations and then that in a in a within a group between you you have a set of limitations and ideally they're not all going to be the same limitation because then mm-hmm. you can you've got different purposes within that's it that's it that's it which enables you to not freak out when you're around other people because they obey to the same more or less the same rules and all those kind of things really so it's a bit conducive and it enables you to not have to pay attention to all your surrounding you can pay attention to the one thing really otherwise you're expecting everything to collapse around you the world to be so so random and changing in a random fashion that you're on tender hook all the time really like you're a prey you're going to be eaten at any moment really compared to that's not and then you have to pay attention to everything and nothing <laughs> that's the problem really you're paying attention to not being eaten and that's it really just eat and not be eaten and that's limiting you quite a fair bit really but being able to pay attention to other people and yourself and because <laughs> you were able to do that as well all the rest nature and being all with all those kind of stuff helps us to it's a limitation again but it, we are limited which enables us to do an awful lot more which is quite a weird concept really hmm. so I'm not too sure where we're going with that, really, with all the Ondoto sets and Misty sets, but yeah. I was going to ask if you wanted to start the podcast. Yes, that's it, that's it. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe we should, really, talk about more serious things, really. I, th- I think that was very serious. No, it was, good. it was nice to talk about something very slightly different, but should we go back to what we know about? Yes, that's it, that's it, that's <clears> it. it. <throat> oh, my God. Satus. C-E-T-U-S the well in the sky one of the constellations anyway <laughs> let's knock because there are they are sea mammals in the sky so we've already actually mapped it the pattern of it is mapped even in the sky for us really so it's quite important really yeah, but there's not many ants in the sky yeah why because we, we don't pay attention to them enough, really. And the pattern doesn't really resonate with us, really. The pattern matching. Mm. Unless unless there were ants in the sky, but it's just every single dot is an ant. Yeah. And that, that archetypal it. story and that's the message it. in that story got lost over that's the it, years. That's it, that's it. 
Yeah. Ça, ce bit more as astrological. <laughs> Rather than I, ast astronomical. I've never heard of anyone talk about sea animals in, as a constellation. Yeah. It always, it always seems to be land mammals. Yeah, yeah. No, there's delphinus. So there's a dolphin as well. Delphinus. There's a erad eridanus which is a river Eridanus. Eridanus. E-R-I-D-A-N-U-S. Eridanus. Where um, Orion is hunting from. And at the foot of Orion, there's Lepus, the hare. And on the east, southeast of it, there's Canis Major with Sirius, the brightest star. Because we talked about Sirius with the heliacal rising of Sirius, mm -hmm. of Sotis. Um, and then a bit uh, uh, above it, north of that, there's a Monoceros, the unicorn. The unicorn, which is quite a faint constellation. It's not very easy to see. And then a bit more above that and to the east, there's a um, Canis Minor with a Procyon. And a bit above that, there's a Castor and Pollux, part of the Gemini. Gemini. So we are part of the uh, zodiacal. Uh, constellation and then um, a bit more on the uh, west of Orion we've got Taurus and Aldebaran with the Hyad the V-shape uh, asterism and below that is the river Eridanus which is where it's is hunting from so it's surrounded by it's surrounded by uh, little creatures and That's it. And he's hunting from the river. That's it, that's it. With his club. With his club and his shield or his shield, whatever. And that's just and one. Belt. That's just in one area, right? The one area of the sky. Then, yeah, and yeah. Then and then there's part a, of the year. That's it, that's it, that's it. That's at the moment. That's what we see at the moment mm. around after, yeah, let's say, nine o'clock in, in the evening at the moment in February. South facing. Yeah, it's great. It's an interesting little. Uh, interesting little uh, area of interest <laughs> yeah have you taken any photos recently uh, yeah I did a bit but um, uh, when did I do that a couple of weeks back and I tried to take, uh, use my new um, camera lens my uh, Samyang and uh, actually I put the tripod on uh, on um, it's like a little Skywatcher box would actually does a bit the tracking. It's not super precise, but because the lens has got quite a wide field, it doesn't matter too much. And and you can con you can control it with your mobile phone via Wi-Fi. It's perfect stuff. And the box controls the camera and and the triggers the camera. So it's like an intervalometer type stuff. And uh, it was really frozen because obviously it was uh, clear and it's winter the, the thing was frozen and then he bloody freaking fell and I broke the lens so yeah that was my last <laughs> thing I was not super pleased by my uh, yeah my achievement that evening what was the picture you, I can imagine what was the picture you showed me ages ago of a constellation of stars or maybe even like a uh, nebula or something uh -huh, uh -huh. and then You showed me one picture that you took and then a period of time afterwards, I swear it was yeah. like quite a long time after, yeah. you showed me the, the same one, but yeah. the star had fully formed and in the first Oh uh, yeah, no, 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 no. So that's... Uh, See how much of this I got completely wrong. Yeah, no, 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 no. That's a bit that. So um, 
So that's uh, I can't even remember when it was. I should remember is when my my father's mother died. Um, so it's maybe 2013 or 2012. So there was a, a supernova in uh, Canis Venatici, which is the hunting dog, and one of the spiral galaxy, which actually is an interacting spinal, uh, spiral galaxy, because there's two of them, is called M51, it's called the pinwheel, uh, is it the pinwheel? Or is that M101? Maybe, I can't remember. So, uh, the, in, there's a nice Messier object, Uh, Messier was an astronome, a French astronome with Méchain, who were trying to uh, map where all the faint fuzzies were with their uh, telescope because they were after comets. So they were after things who were moving and they were a bit looking like comets. Anyway, so in that uh, galaxy, there's uh, I took a picture three days before the... Um, three days before the... the Uh, supernova appeared and uh, I can't really remember how far the galaxy is but I think it's maybe like 80 million light year away basically so and then the stuff was discovered and then I took another picture a couple of days later with the new star in it so I missed the new star by three days out of a 80 million year journey journey <laughs> A bit. So yeah, I'm not yeah, I'm a bit pissed off about that, but hey, well, I'll get over it. There'll be other supernovas, and maybe I'll catch one for the first time. Nobody has caught it before. But it's getting a bit trickier and trickier. The amateurs, there's now um, the large synoptic survey, for example, or there's different programs who are really mapping the sky most days, basically. And, they can't, and it's all computerized, so they look at differences because computers are really good about that. Really, you show them an image and they, you look at an image where there's a difference. They are very good at picking up the difference, basically. So... What, what what's it getting as then it's getting easier to find when a supernova is forming that's it that's so it's it, that's not it, like it. it's not like maybe 10 years ago where it was that's really it. special if you found one so like other part of science with astronomy we have looked at different spectrum so you want to pick up the supernova and you want to point an infrared an ultraviolet a gamma ray an x-ray or a microwave or a long uh, radio wave a telescope at it to see it at different wavelengths in, because it's going to behave in different fashion. Or you can correlate the way it behaves at all the different uh, things, all the different wavelengths. So you get a bit of a flavor of the whole thing, really. And that's becoming quite an interesting thing. So you need a, a big surveys who pick up the whole lot and then everybody's directed to the whole thing and then we do comparative surveys with different uh, wavelengths which enables us to look at the amount of dust there is in between you and the object the extinction so there's an extinction process the, the space is not empty uh, be, 
is relatively empty over an 80 million year journey, yes. But they still, nonetheless, maybe at close proximity of that star, they might have been some dust or those kind of stuff, and then an extinction process. But at different wavelengths, you can see the effect of the extinction because the dust and the, we can even tell the particles are one micron, or the particles are centimetric, or the particles are uh, gas, or the particles are plasma, or the particles are different because they're going to uh, impinge certain wavelengths of the electromagnetic spectrum to actually propagate. It's a bit like a microwave. It's mm. like... Um, Sounds just like it. Yeah. Well, yeah, you can see inside your microwave. But you don't, you don't fry your freaking brains when looking at the microwave. Because the microwave uh, wave is contained inside the microwave and, not, and it's much bigger than actually the wavelengths of the light. So we don't have to do holes as big as the bloody f uh, 450 nanometer of uh, the infrared light, okay? <laughs> but we can do, or f maybe no infrared, but 600, maybe more infrared. Then that's fine. So you get like little holes in that grid in front of the wall microwave, which actually is like a mirror. So it keeps the, the wave of the uh, microwave inside the microwave. Mm. But it allows you to be able to look inside. Okay? So it's, it's completely dark because you can't feel the heat from the microwave outside the microwave. That's quite good, actually. Mm. That's great stuff. Okay? But you can see the light from what's happening inside the microwave. It's exactly the same principle. So you take the picture of a supernova and you look at its uh, um, at different wavelengths, the extinction there is, how it progresses over time, and you can infer whether it's a um, let's say a neutron star who's, uh, or a big super, a big red giant who's actually decayed or uh, two merging or whatever it depends there's so many possibilities and then so that's how you can infer so with the scientific process you look at different with different wavelengths and astronomy and it, it, you infer quite a lot and can you take different photos of different wavelengths We're able to do that. Can ah we bah, take like yeah. gamma. That's it. That's it. That's it. That's it. But the problem is you can't see it. So if if so at, if if you go if you go yeah that's it. That's the problem. Your limitation of your eye. So we go back to limitation again. So your eye is going to see um, 200 or 300 uh, nanometer of uh, the spectrum basically. Okay. And or a bit more, maybe. I can't really exactly remember. But so the main is called Hubble Palette, for example. So uh, with your computer, you've got green, blue, and red. Okay. So basically, you're gonna take radio wave and um, long, long radio wave, short radio wave, and microwave images with your telescopes. But you have to code it for you to be able to see them. So the long uh, radio wave is going to be red, the uh, short radio wave is going to be green, and the uh, uh, microwave is going to be blue. And then you make the image out of that. So you can see it. Otherwise, you can't see it because it's microwave. And, and, and when you can see microwave, you call me because we need to study you pretty, <laughs> pretty strongly. Really. Well, that makes a lot of sense. That's why you process your images. With my... Uh, no, no, no. Because my camera... The camera I use is like my eye because I'm seeing mostly like my eye. Yeah. I'm just seeing the... Okay, so that's a Bayer matrix. 
So inside the chip of the of the camera, there's a little grid in front of it with two green, one blue, one red. Two green, one blue, one red. So it's not really one pixel is actually a red pixel or two green pixel or a blue pixel. Okay. So every four pixel, the, the unit is a four pixel. Okay. And that's what you process basically. That's a CMOS. A CMOS. I can't even remember what the. CMOS or whatever. CMOS, that's it. CMOS. Yeah. CMOS. Oh, And then the CCCD. The CCD, which is like a couple charge device, I think it is. And that's single pixel. But it's a black and white type thing. Anyway. And then you can put filter in front of it. And then if I put uh, oxygen 3, sulfur 2, or hydrogen alpha uh, filter, I get the three colors. So hydrogen alpha will be red, but I can put green if I want. I can change the whole bloody thing however I want. You can be quite creative. It doesn't matter really. But you see more the uh, hydrogen alpha will be more, uh, well, because there's lots of hydrogen in uh, universe and in certain galaxies and everything, star forming places, all the rest, and it ionizes the hydrogen. So it strips. So we need to go back to atoms and the cloud, the quantified cloud of electron, which is... Um, Around orbiting around the the atom, the nucleus of the atom, and the, it's a different energy. It can't be in between. So when you strip, you hit an atom with a very powerful, let's say, gamma ray uh, atom. You're able to strip maybe a very uh, deep and close to the nucleus uh, electron. And by doing so, the photon that is emitting by the uh, thing jumping from really close to, to quite far is of very high uh, wavelengths. Because okay. it's taken something that's quite high energy. That's it, close by, that's it, exactly. So there's quantification. So we took uh, hydrogen, hydrogen uh, three would be three time ionized. Uh, oh, oxygen three is going be three time ionized uh, oxygen. So the oxygen has lost three electrons. Okay. The atom of oxygen misses three electrons, and by having being stripped of three electrons, he actually emits a certain wavelengths. Mm. Okay. And sulfur too, same and things like that. So you get a bit an idea and you can color code all that, basically. So it's restriction again because uh, your fovea is made of little cells that are very sensitive to... Are, actually, they are not very sensitive to light. You need an awful lot of photons to trigger an action potential in your fovea. Okay, but it's, it's color sensitive. Compared to the peripheral retina, the rest of your retina is sensitive to one photon. Every little organelles are sensitive to one photon, and that's why we so we talked about PGO spikes. Without paraphrasing the whole lot, so ponto geniculo occipital uh, spikes, okay, which takes you out of your trance which takes you out of your fixed state of attention, is anything moving in your peripheral vision. 
anything moves, bang. You have to, you see it in your peripheral vision, it triggers a response. It's like ballistic movement type thing. You don't even have to think about, oh my God, there's something in the peripheral vision and look at it. Oh shit, there's thing. What do I do now? Yeah, let's run, maybe. And then you're already eaten anyway. Yeah. So it has to be really instant. You see the whole lot. You don't even you don't even think you, you don't even know you're you, running. You you're, you don't even know you're running. You're legging it. Or if you're not fallen mm. and shot yourself, type thing. But that's that's what PGO. So um, a shooting star like the in August in the garden. You go on your sun lounger and you look at the night of the shooting star. The Perseids is excellent because you look in the, in the sky. You can see the Milky Summer Milky Way. It's really nice and thing. And all of a sudden, whoosh, there's a little thing in your peripheral. Oh, and then you turn. Oh, but by the time you turn, it's gone already. It's a bit frustrating, but that's the whole thing. So it's very sensitive to motion and very sensitive to low light things. So it's just contrast. It's black and white. It's one photon. I mean, one photon. One fo is not very big. Okay. Compared to in your, in your fovea, I think it's 10,000, let's say 10,000. So it's 10,000 times less sensitive to, that's why you can, so that's why you got averted night vision. What? You, what? Averted night vision. So you don't, when people are completely night blind, I'm night blind. I can't see fuck all. It's like, well, yeah, don't stare at the whole bloody thing because there's not enough light to trigger any action potential in your fovea. So you need to look, you, you need to look nowhere and everywhere at night. And then you see a lot. You see loads of contrast. You see distances. You see things moving. Friend or foe. Type thing. All those kind of stuff. That's what, and then when I do astronomy, when I look in the ocular, and then I place the object in the center, if it's really dim, I tend to look a bit aside. And I've got, in my case, because part of my retina is a bit more, cons there's a, in the peripheral retina, there's one place where there's a bit more concentration of, of, um, organelles, basically. And there's one part where your optic nerve comes out, there is fuck all, so you see nothing. So there's one part in your, in your, in your vision, if I ask you to look, and all of a sudden, I've got, you can do that, it's called scotomata, when, with medi medicine, you take a little ball, uh, uh, through a stick, and then you put it in front of thing, and then you can't see it. So if you look at me, I put it in front of you, you can't see it. Because that's the part where your optic nerve comes out on your retina, and there's no thing to see there. Because there's not only your optic nerve, there's your uh, artery and your vein. Okay? Optic vein and optic artery. Okay? So you are <laughs> just going to be like this, finding my weak spots. <laughs> that's it, that's it, that's it. That's it, that's it. So that's one. But you can't even... Because when you look, you can't see any... Oh. Because you fill it in, right? Unless you've got a pro unless you've got a problem and you got pressure, for example, from your pituitary. If you had a pituitary tumor, like a, let's say a prolactinoma, on top of other symptoms, the tumor would actually press. Maybe not a prolactinoma because it's on your posterior pituitary, which you want the anterior pituitary tumor mm -hmm. to actually press on the optical chiasma where your optic nerves are because it's sitting just there. And all of a sudden, you start to have like a blind spot. So every time, you 
you smash yourself that retina and that retina can't see the whole stuff there so you're gonna smash yourself every time you're gonna knock into things because there's a bit more to it but so there's the fovea very color color sensitive but it needs an awful lot of light and you got your peripheral retina which is very very uh, sensitive to movement and and very dim light And part of that, in that peripheral retina, you got the place where the optic nerve comes out, where you see fuck all from. But you're able to scan around so you can build an image which is, which is uniform. Okay? Despite the fact that when I put the whole thing in front of your eye, you're not gonna see it. We could, we could, I'll, I'll try on you later. You should be fine. Um, I'm going to go home crying if you. Is that it? Is it? Is it? Ah, I could not see the whole thing. It disappeared in front of my eyes. Which is quite an interesting part. And then, and then the averted night vision. So I look in my ocular at really dim object, and I, I look uh, in my case it's two o'clock. I look at two o'clock of the whole thing, and then it uh, brightens. And then I look at it; it, it dims. Because I look with my fovea, there's not enough light. Despite the telescope gathering quite a lot of light to make it like that, so okay. But I look at it directly; it's very dim. I look away, bang! It brightens. But I can't see much detail, so it brightens. So I have to go back and forth, back and forth, like that. It's quite an interesting exercise. Averted night vision. Well. You learn, it, you learn something every day? 100%. 100%. I've never heard of that before. That's it. That's it. Scotomata. It's completely bonkers part. Yeah. What, what actual part of your eye is your fovea? Is it the... It's in the retina. At, at, the, the, at the back of the retina. At the back, yeah. And it's the bit that actually gets the... That's the, it. Because actually, the sensitive structures are actually behind the blood vessels and other, all the neurons. It's a very bizarre part. And then you got the pigment at the back. So there's like, it's like a, a, a black screen. It's quite weird. It's a weird way it's function. You think the whole thing is the light comes at it direct and then there's all the neurons there. And not at all. All the neurons are in front of it. And then the whole sensitive part, you have to go through the neurons with the light to go to the sensitive part. It's a bit peculiar. It's a bit peculiar. That's why I believe we were made by God. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, well, it depends what God is, but I think, yeah, there is. There is some interesting theories beyond that. Yes, you have to have some kind of consciousness to create consciousness. But we need to talk about consciousness, and that's fucked up because <laughs> nobody knows about it. And yeah, when I was listening to um, so Joe Griffin and Ivan Tarrell, I've got a fantastic. Um, theory uh, to explain consciousness and it's a relaton and a soliton uh, theory and it's uh, it's mind bending properly because you know even in physics and cosmology at the moment we've got dark energy which is like 73% of what the universe is made of and we've got no fucking clue where it is okay and then it's 23% of dark matter which we got, we can see the effect it has, but we got, we can infer indirectly that it's there, but we don't know where it is. Okay. And we got 4% of, oh, the whole thing we are made of, baryonic matter. Actual okay? stuff that we can measure. That's it. So there's 96. No, 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 no. We can measure. Well, no. Otherwise, we would not know the 73% dark energy. We can measure it, but we're not too sure where it is. 
or um, we can measure its effect. Examine. We can measure its yeah. effect. Okay. I, know, I know what I meant. Exactly. What I said was wrong. Yeah. And then the dark energy, dark matter, and things. So there's ninety six percent of the universe is something we've got no freaking clue where it is. We want to unify gravity and a quantic, uh, and quantic mechanic. That's going to be quite interesting. If 96% of where the whole bloody schmilblick is made of, we've got no bloody clue where it is, really. It's a bit like, oh, come on, let's, and then that's where the reliton and the soliton theory comes into play. And it's to try to explain a bit of consciousness and to try to explain, explain things about information and, limitations and pattern matching and all the rest it's pretty well elaborated it's quite an interesting thing because that's the thing really it seems that it's only physicists who are going to be able to solve and bring because the main main thing of science is to bring different patterns together to make a unifying pattern So we're trying to bring the whole theory and what the quantum mechanics is, which has got a certain pattern with uh, gravitational uh, theory, uh, and try to bring it together into a unified pattern. That's the same thing, really. Okay, and everybody thinks it's physicists who can do it, really. But why can't it be a Potter who can do it? Why can't it be because our Potter has? as crap at uh, describing consciousness as a physicist. <laughs> That's the thing, really. So, a psychologist and neuroscientist and historians and everybody has their place to actually try to unify the whole thing because we are talking about... Oh, we're talking about matter. Well, no, we're talking about information. We're not talking about matter. We're talking about information. Because that's the thing, really. It's, it's, oh, it's the realm of the physicist. Well, no. That's maybe why you have not been able mm -hmm. to actually find a bit of a unifying solution quite yet. Because you're so, putting so many limitations. Again, we go back to limitation. The sacrifice. They've not made a big sacrifice to the whole lot, really. Why is it, you said at the start of the podcast, that limitation maybe the limitation's good and it allows us to do an infinite more. amount of things exactly yeah yeah, yeah, well, yeah. I, I, because I, it's I, a game because we play a game it's all a game Elliot we play a game and a game has a set of rules and a set of rules and a, um, the way we conceptualize the rule and the way we act upon it in order to be conscious of it and the environment we're in is quite limiting as well it allows us to have all permutation and possibilities you see how many moves is there on a on a chest on a chess uh, a board uh, it would be good to have the oracle how many how many moves can we do on a chess thing and I can tell you I'm not too sure there's 64 I think there must be 64 um, pods or black or white uh, squares how many permutation is there at the game of chess how many games can we play on a game of chess the maximum number of moves yeah. in a chess game yeah. is not infinite it's 11,797 plies yeah. which equals 5,898 moves and a half. And a half. 
That's it. So there's 64, there's 64 uh, things. Uh, I'm not too sure how many uh, pawns they are. And how many, there's only two. Eight on each side. Eight on each side. That's it, that's it, that's it. So there's a few here. Yeah, and we can do 11,000 uh, moves, really. Like, come on, it's, it's disproportionate to uh, the amount of... <laughs> of things there is really so we impose quite a lot of limitation we impose quite a lot of rules the environment is limited as well and despite that and it looks like there's not much and despite that we can do so many so many more games really mm. the way we can play is so much more really but that is it's a bit of a weird one to get your head around though isn't yeah, yeah, it there's, yeah, yeah. there's like a set of rules a set of limitations and yeah. with those rules yeah. and limitations mm -hmm. you can get unbelievably creative but, but you kind it. of you know that in your own life anyway because yeah. like you were saying earlier if you are trying to contend with every possibility of the future mm -hmm. then you're you're a bit stuffed you're yeah. like it's the anxiety is too big mm -hmm. there's too many possibilities of the future mm -hmm. if you're truly tr truly trying to contend with all of them mm -hmm. then that's a pretty big mm -hmm. amount of things to contend with but mm -hmm. if you limit yourself to only contending to maybe a couple. No, you don't have to limit yourself. You're already limited. Yeah, right. That's the thing, really. There's an intrinsic limitation on the way your brain functions, how you perceive things, mm. all those kind of stuff, which helps you to focus on a few things. Otherwise, so, you can't focus on it all, really. So if, if you're, if you don't perceive that the possibilities of the future are limited, yeah. then that's you using your imagination quite a bit. Yeah. But maybe too much. Uh -huh. Maybe it's gone a little bit awry. Uh -huh. But if you, One of apply the some rational thinking to that mm -hmm. then you'll see that mm -hmm. many of those uh, potentials mm -hmm. are highly highly unlikely to the point where they they're not really needed to be contended with mm -hmm, mm -hmm. exactly it's quite a good way of uh, looking at it it's quite an interesting way of looking at it you cannot do whatever you want because you it doesn't it doesn't even mean anything <laughs> There's um the thing really. There's a comedian my favourite comedian at the moment is a guy called Chris Delay and he's got a stand up which is quite old but I've watched it too many times called Man on Fire and it's about the Denzel Washington film and how he's like you everyone thinks that they're Denzel in in their life and like in the film they're like yeah stuff and he's like he always talks about how people are like you can be whatever you want to be and he's like Shh, shut up no you can't <laughs> you just you just can't that's it that's it that's it but with that I so I kind of I sort of struggle with that a little bit because obviously there's limitations you said before that you aren't going to be able to be a basketball player because there's some physical limitations that you have and my and my <laughs> coordination if I'm a bit dyspraxic yeah. the whole stuff is not it's not very conducive I can play on my own yeah it's cool but the problem with basketball there's a set of rules there's a hoop the hoop is quite a big limitation the hoop is not massive <laughs> it's actually as bloody big <laughs> as the bloody thing okay as a ball okay that's a limitation again yeah, and it's course. quite high as well I'm not going even bloody touch it with my arm stretch so I have to jump and I'm not very good at jumping and then there's other people who are quite tall around you really really good at running and doing the stuff they don't vomit when they run all the way to the other side <laughs> which I do and can't really bloody do the stuff so yeah no I've already shelved the world stuff I don't mind having a bit of fun with my child or with myself on my own so nobody watches because I'm pretty pathetic at it really and how many times that 
takes the ball in the face when it bounces off the bloody thing, really. <laughs> That's as far as my thing goes, really. So, but I, I no, but think <laughs> that if you played basketball from when you were two uh-huh. or three, mm-hmm. and you played it a lot and you really enjoyed it, mm-hmm. and so you carried on playing until you were like sixteen. Maybe you would never make the NBA, but maybe uh-huh. you would make a relatively good team in the UK or in France or somewhere. Yeah, that's it, that's it, that's so it. I'm, thing, not, I'm not thing, too sure, but I'd have quite a lot of pleasure doing it, maybe. Yeah, really. yeah. And that's, which, which I guess is the main thing, that's right? That's it, that's yeah. it, that's it. That's but it. from that then, there's kind of... is does the limitation on things increase as you get older or are limitations in some way put on you? As you as you get older, yeah, like yeah, it yeah. seems like when you're younger, there's a lot yeah. there's a lot fewer yeah. limitations on what you're capable of. Yeah. And with the like neurological pathways when you're born, mm-hmm. they're like aren't they like pretty much all open or something ridiculous? Mm-hmm. So then as you get older, more and more like they they shut they shut they shut, and these, these certain neurological pathways strengthen. Yeah. So you actually become Alexi the osteopath, mm-hmm. and I actually become whatever the fuck I'm going to be, and. Yeah. And so it's like, it's and wherever I'm fucking gonna be as yeah. well, because I'm maybe not gonna be stuck into being an osteopath, and I don't want those pathways to be set. I want to be able to create some more. There's still some possibility throughout life if you develop the whole lot to be able to learn new tricks. Really, um, my patient uh, uh, Sarah uh, in January, she uh, or no this year, her New Year resolution was to learn a new trick every month this year. She did juggling in January. I've not seen her in Feb, so I'm not too sure. But all those kind of stuff, really. So um, I'll, I'll know a bit what the whole new trick she's going to learn in a month. Your so she every day she tr- she's really learn how to juggle. She, had, she didn't even know how to do that. And then in January, she do not. I'm not sure what she does in February. We'll know what she does in March at some stage. And I, I don't know where I heard this from recently and is... Is it something like your brain's plasticity stays the same from when you're a fully fledged adult mm-hmm. until pretty much like uh-huh. not not long after you die, like seventies, uh-huh. eighties? That's it. That's it. And then, so this is something I've been thinking about a lot recently with regards to that psychedelic talk that I went on, where uh-huh. it was talking a lot about how the psychedelics affect serotonin, uh-huh. and I, I asked them the question, and like, why was he fo- so focused on serotonin? Uh-huh. And there's one. Uh, is it fMRI scan? Yeah, or where, MRI, yeah. And and they they put it in like a graphical form where it was without psychedelics. Like there's certain parts of the brain that were used quite a lot, and then with this on a psychedelic, yeah. the like it, the whole thing lit up. Like the the pathways, the links, and things like that mm-hmm. were like massive around the brain. Mm-hmm. So it's like whether whether psychedelics help you you access different parts of your brain or not which it looks like in some cases it, that's probably true or whether because the, the psychedelic in this study um, increased the I think like um, serotonin um, what's serotonin 2 or something I can't remember what it's mm-hmm. called now that's so annoying but a, a type of serotonin or like mm-hmm. a precursor or, or something post serotonin mm-hmm. and so it seems like if you have a lot of serotonin then maybe you have access to, to more of your brain. Uh-huh. Maybe. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Um, the, the research I heard from, from Mr. Nice 
is not called Mr. Nice, but I can't remember his name, who was doing a research for psilocybin, which was really difficult in the UK because it's a class A drug. Mm -hmm. So it's difficult to actually do study about that. Uh, he was doing things about people who were suffering from depression clinical depression, however that bloody means, and the experience people have of it, but on a functional MRI, bizarrely, when you're depressed, your, your brain is there to filter, ah, to restrict your perception, <laughs> another restriction. So uh, depressed people are filtering their perception of reality more than uh, somebody who's not depressed. And therefore, their brain activity in certain uh, parts of the brain are much more active. So the difference between a, um, not depressed and a depressed person, whatever that bloody means, okay, because I'm not even too sure the, what it means, the difference between two people, so psychonormal or depressed person, whatever that means, the difference between the two is the depressed people, if we call them like that, are their brain is so much more active than people who are not depressed. Okay. And bizarrely, the psilocybin is decreasing, is limiting the limitation. It's limiting the limitation. Limiting the limitation. It's a double negative. So actually, it actually dampens your cortical activity at filtering reality. And that's why you got hallucinations. An hallucination is your brain taking on board too much. So you can see sounds or um, hear light or taste smells. Well, actually, there's a bit of a link between the two, but kind of that way, really. Or you see things so much more vivid or things get distorted or whatever, okay? So loud uh, sounds, loud, your warmth, your sense of touch, everything tends to change a little bit. And because you actually do not filter enough your senses to make sense of it. There's too much input from your senses. That's what the psilocybing does. And bizarrely, so, and it depresses, it, it, it inhibits your cortical activity. Oh. So it would be quite interesting to maybe give at, at um, therapeutical dosage psilocybin to people who were depressed. So it will inhibit the extra activity they got into their brain to actually uh, perceive reality differently. But there's a problem because serotonin is not what it's on about. Mm. Serotonin is just a tool. And the tool is great when you know what to do with the tool and that's how your brain functions so you need dopamine first you need a plan you need a plan and you need plans because you have to contain with different uh, different games and different games require different tools so you need different serotonins and you need different you need focus on dopamine so that's the problem a bit uh, psychedelics are great maybe for a cure for depression but I don't think it, depression can be cured I think it can be helped and I don't think it can be helped as much with serotonin as it can with giving people a bit of a direction it's not really about it being cured it's more about it being understood right 
So it's like you, yes, that's you, it, that's you, it, that's you understand the markers or the things within yourself, mm-hmm. just like mm-hmm. pain. That's it. That's it. Pain. You are, so you take you take full responsibility of the way you see the world and you engage with it uh, willingly and uh, you try to get a plan. And that's why uh, that's an, that's a bit of a very very. I think that's a damn bloody uh, research and a result of a research. Um, people, young people under the age of 25 or maybe 21 commit much more suicide when they are put on serotonin reuptake inhibitors compared to the rest of uh, people who are age group, basically. So, and that's one of the reasons, really. Your brain is giving the impression that it's got tools. But yeah. you don't have a plan. You're not given a plan, really. Mm. So a 50-year-old who's a bit depressed, who needs, who, whose wife and kid have just died in a car accident, well, yeah, the plan, uh, he's got lots of tools, he had a plan, and the plan gets completely wiped. And therefore, he becomes depressed. No, no wonder, really. Until he forms a new plan. And all the tools he was using already to... Do the, to achieve the plan uh, can be reused really but he's 50 year old and uh, 18 or 17 year old or 16 year old who's put on serotonin reuptake inhibitor he's got no idea about his tools he's, yeah he's got hammers he's got chainsaws but uh, he's so freaking scared of using the chainsaw because uh, he doesn't want to cut all his legs and his arms and all the whole lot really because he doesn't know how to use it really you need to be able to use it and to use it you need to perfect perfect it and you need to try it and you need to see the consequence of what it is and, uh, and you need to be rewarded when the consequence looks like it's a positive consequence that's where endorphin comes into play that's a really interesting way of looking at, uh, at, at looking at limitation in in uh, in um, neurophysiological way really and that uh, de- depression whatever we want to call it really which actually is not really depression because I just told you that the brain was more active so <laughs> and, and then when you put that into a context of a having a plan or having some competence or or uh, what was the word you used like tools having some tools within a context of a social environment that's the like essentially the bio psychosocial model of mm-hmm. pain of, of pain of yeah. depression or, or it, mental health mm-hmm. yeah that's such a unbelievably interesting way to look at it mm-hmm. and you need the feedback you need to apply your tool and see the feedback so how much does your phone or your computer enhance your ability to see the feedback from certain behaviors don't are we uh, thinking is a phone enhancing your ability to interact with others or is it limiting it that's, that's it so you are being sold that it's actually enhancing it but it's but limiting actually, in, actually in it's limiting way. it very much because yeah. you don't have contact with people you don't have feedback we talked about the polyvagal theory and the fact that your brain reacts and gives you a gut sensation uh, by the activation of people's cranial nerves 
So their eyes, their facial expression, the tone of their voice, the uh, position of their shoulders, all those kind of stuff is gonna inform you on the relevance and whether the, it's conducive to have a social interaction with that person. The phone completely removes that. So you send a post and you got no idea yourself what it means and how it makes you feel because you don't know the, you can't even see the response of other. You can just read it, which is so out of context, really. So it completely, it restricts so badly your interaction, really, with others. It, uh, it's great to know how many moves there is possible on a game of chess. <laughs> it's great for that kind of information that's great really how far is M51 from the solar system it's great and how many parsecs or how many light years whatever we don't I mean really there's mm -hmm. a great amount of uh, things that it enhances but there's a great amount of things that it restricts and you need to know mm. about that really and it's a tool it's like a tool you need to stop pretending that it does that it enhances or takes away the limitations that we have that's on it. social interaction. That's it. It just creates a whole new set of limitations. And even if there's quite a lot of knowledge uh, uh, associated with having access to uh, all Wikipedia and all the dictionary and all the latest research and all the different books and a summary of them, it doesn't exclude the fact that you need to know how to use the whole bloody information, really. And and the, the scientific method or the pain gate or the expectation fulfillment theory of dream or the quantic mechanic or the entanglement principle or all those kind of things help uh, restrict the possibility of your imagination mm. which is great that's, a, that's something that has again been on my mind like that these are models or these are theories it's not it's not saying that it's this is the absolute truth uh -huh, no. it's just like here's a really useful way uh -huh. that people have tried and tested and mm -hmm. it's it is in, in practice it's very useful mm -hmm. to look at it this um, way like the entanglement theory or and if you do the thing like them and you test it and you can disprove that it's uh, not a, a true representation of reality uh, we are all wanting to hear from you really because mm. it's very important yeah and you'll probably end up coming up with a very like not a variation but something if you disprove it mm -hmm. then there's going to be a set of information that's going to be useful to yourself and, the, and others to then use and then build something new that's and it come up, and then someone else will do it and And little you know, the ramification of that new theory could be uh, outside of your field of expertise on top of it, really. Relaton and solitons. That's, I mean, it's... I really want to get that video, but I need to finish my online courses first. <laughs> no, it's a, it's, it's, yeah, it's amazing. Anyway, no, it's good to talk about those stuff, really, the wool sacrifice we make really and how it makes us feel really and how arrogant or, or resentful we can be of ourselves and I don't know like you want a new car and you have to work an extra day a week to pay for your new car is if it is 
a, a sacrifice you think is worth doing. Mazatov. That's it. Good, good for you, really. That's the thing, really. But uh, for other people, you must be happy to to see that others might think it's uh, not very uh, a sacrifice worth doing, really. But also, I think often, not often, but well, maybe just speaking personally, often that that sacrifice, working that extra day for that car, uh-huh. is like it's not always obvious that that's what I want. For that's what I want. Ooh, yeah, want or need or need. Ah, well, yeah, that's it. So yeah. you need to differentiate the two, really. So is a car to do with status or more status, more security, or so you think, more control, more um, attention from others, more <laughs> all the rest, really. Yeah. So. That's where we go back to the needs and it's brilliant, really. But you need to be able to be resourceful at rationalizing the whole thing, really. So if, if it's a car and you need it, uh, I don't know, you're a rep, you're going to spend a lot of time in that car and having a, a nice car that is quite economical, <coughs> economical so a newer model, is uh, interesting maybe it's a hybrid because you go into town and lots of towns are going to start limiting uh, petrol, I don't know, like diesel cars all those kind of things and you have to go into town well y- yeah you have to you need to buy that because it's your job and your financial security and the practicality and the restriction of the environment that helps you do the stuff so yes you might have to do a loan and <laughs> buy that car because otherwise if you don't have the car you can't uh, do your job and that's it really full stop really but if you need to go to livery yard full of mud and things like that maybe having a 1000 quid car it doesn't really matter really because <laughs> that's just taking you from A to B that's the thing really that's the problem we have with cars and the problem we have with cars is a lot of the uh, global warming uh, processes uh, to do with that as well as Conteneur wow, carrier thing it's, it's, and it, it's it, petroleum. It's petroleum. Yeah, what, it's, it's, what, it's, what is it we think we need out of petroleum, and what are the needs we can fulfill using petroleum, and uh, what is it we want out of the petroleum? And until we have salted the whole shenanigan, uh, which is not such a shenanigan, what we start to ask the right question, well, we'll get the right solution. So that's what we do. We are humans. We are great at finding solutions. Yeah, it's like what the number one or the only or the biggest reason for global warming is everyone says a different thing, like whether it's cars or meat or whatever. But the number one thing is that we're using, we're addicted to petroleum and we're addicted to using it for things that we want as well as things that we need mm-hmm. and not really very good at differentiating the two. Mm-hmm. That's, that's could be quite a good way to start the questioning and trying to find and see a bit what kind of solution uh, come out of that really. And that's maybe interesting. And it's on an individual basis, on a, a city basis. Bristol wants to make uh, the city centre, uh, re- uh, restrict the city centre to uh, petroleum, well, like uh, unleaded uh, cars. 
and no more diesel cars in town, really. Which, yeah. <laughs> the difference between a red light and a, and a runabout. In terms of particulate, really. You're more likely at a runabout to actually uh, not have to rave your car and st not have to stop, and it flows much more, and therefore there's less people uh, there. But when you're on idle, you don't, yeah? but it's when you kickstart your car where there's more uh, uh, things. So uh, it depends if it's hybrid, because hybrid might actually go on, huh? and then a lot of the cars tend to stop their engine when they're stopping, all those kind of stuff. So how the difference between a red light at a crossing and a runabout is making in terms of the effect on the particulate is changing over time because uh, the mode of transportation changes and the technology changes and how much energy it takes to actually retrofit a, a red light crossing by and, and the people involved and the work and the materials and the, I mean it's it never ends really yeah it's okay? complicated it's, yeah. Not, it's not straightforward it's not straightforward yeah. really okay but why is it we want to do that really to and do then, what really and then kind of uh, maybe linking it back to the limitation or you started using the word sacrifice uh -huh. so we have a set of limitations within our life and the games that we play mm -hmm. like work or, or whatever it doesn't matter what it is the series of play or games that we play and then we've spoken before about sacrifice and, you, and and how like that's a form of I guess willing limitation in some ways yeah. and then from sacrifice if it's a stable environment the benefits from that sacrifice like you, if you if you're right if you're good at making a good sacrifice mm -hmm. then the benefits could be quite big mm -hmm. and we spoke before about like a, a fossil fuel Sunday or free yeah. Sunday or mm -hmm or, or yeah. what, one day a week mm -hmm. it's quite an interesting idea to be like you know it's not too you don't have to use your imagination too much and rational thinking too much to understand that if you just limit if you do your shopping or during the week or you, and you limit using your car or no car or whatever on a Sunday and then decide that you know you're going to walk to friends or you're going to or whatever mm -hmm. then there could be quite a nice benefit from the sacrifice of not using your car on Sunday, not mm -hmm. only financial, mm -hmm. not only probably annoyance if you're mm -hmm. in a city because mm -hmm. it's quite busy, but also that you could be spending much more time with some actual people, some mm -hmm. humans. Some humans. And, and spend time with humans doing other things and work or uh, be annoyed in the traffic uh, stuck, really. And that's quite an interesting thing. It uh, reopens you the possibility of interacting with others of your kind in a less aggressive and a less uh, cynical fashion as well, really. Because you can go for a walk and talk about all sorts and things. See the little dandelions and uh, <laughs> it doesn't matter really too much. No, it's, it's interesting uh, mm. way of thinking like that, really. What is it that fossil fuel is really making us think we need so much, which we might not? And what is it that uh, uh, fossil fuel makes us think that we want as well? Which we might not. Which might not. Mm. And 
it's a set of questions uh, that require and are gonna come up with a, a massive set of uh, uh, answers really and uh, what is uh, who is to decide what the best answer is oh we're gonna have to buy uh, we're gonna scrap uh, uh, cars with uh, and we're gonna have all electric cars well because we need or you want or how are we gonna build them saying that the automotive industry is where we recycle an awful lot of the materials so all the plastic from the dashboards, all the lot of the uh, metal, all those kind of stuff is recycled quite well. So there's actually quite a lot of recycling involved with that. But um, batteries and recycling of batteries or retrofitting or all sorts of things going to be quite an interesting thing. So there's going to be a need for energy to actually produce those new cars. And a type of energy, are we going to use nuclear power plant only to do that? And because those batteries are going to have to be charged. And if they need to be charged, we're going to have to burn fossil fuel or radioactive material or uh, solar panels. Oh, but to do solar panels, we need to oh, produce the solar panel. So we need to <laughs> actually, I mean, it's, it's, I mean, really, it's just like it's a bit of a loop in a way. It's so, a really, really complicated issue mm -hmm. that doesn't have simple answers. Mm -hmm. What is the benefit to us on the short term? And what is the benefit to us on the long term? In light of the environment being stable. Because some people are going to say, well, it's going to be World War Three in five weeks time. And actually, the aliens are going to invade in 2033 because it's been written on the Inca type stuff. So what's the freaking point anyway? Because we're all going to die. It's like, great, brilliant. Yeah, let's not do anything. Let's mm. take it right now. Mm. And let's actually, you might as well siphon the petrol from your car and put it on the tarmac and set it alight, really. <laughs> it's as good as anything. <laughs> no, no, I'm joking a bit, but... It's not a joke, but... Yeah. If you look at it, if, you, if you're going to have a nihilistic view on it, then it's just a non-starter. Mm -hmm. That's it. Yeah. And even, it's like, what happens if just in the act of doing stuff as a human, you would have a fulfilling life in the act of doing things mm -hmm. and probably positive because somehow morally we all seem to have some kind of idea on an individual one-to-one -one basis of where mm -hmm. we should be going mm -hmm. on a one-to-one -one basis mm -hmm. and so it's like instead of just not doing anything because you're nihilist might actually be a better argument if you are a nihilist to still actually do something and do something positive you already do something because you're a nihilist anyway yeah. so so all fine that's your way you behave or hopefully you behave in a way that is nihilist as well if so you're a nihilist if you're nihilist yeah. yeah yeah and if you're a nihilist and you behave in a way that is nihilist um well i don't know whether you can even have a car because you're not gonna you're gonna we're not gonna know when you stop at the red light whether it's when it's green or when it's orange or when it's red because at the end of the day you don't want to have to deal with any set of rules anyway and you don't give a fuck about them and I guess 
you're going to find yourself having to drive and obey a set of rules anyway. So you're not really very nihilist. Anyway, that's another story. <laughs> cool. Well, should we end it there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. On that, we can, on that, on really, that note. Yeah. On that. On that <laughs> <laughs> I'm really, really happy one. That's it. That's it. So it's a happy one. Mm. Cool. Good well, job. Thank you. Thank Elliot. you, Alexi. Ciao.